you know, we talk about the the issues that are happening with the Rohingya. There are still, you know, over a million people that are living inside the camps who are in dire need of help. And a lot of the, when the public um, support start to dwindle down, the government support from the international um, community, especially the the donation or the fundings that come from the international governments, also dwindle down. And that means that potentially over a million people who are living in this cramp, very, very uh, chaotic, very, very dire situations inside the camp, very restricted, very destitute, are going to go hungry. You're listening to season three of Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees. This week, we are examining the situation in Myanmar. In 2019, there were over 1.5 million people displaced from the country. As our guest will explain, Myanmar is a predominantly Buddhist country, but there are Muslim and Christian minority groups that experience horrible persecution in the country. Some of these groups are the Karin, the Shan, the Kachin, the Mon, and the Rohingya peoples. Our guest today is Rohingya, a group that has been called one of the most persecuted peoples in the world. Today, we are speaking with Yasmin Ula, a Rohingya activist. Your host for this week is Jackie Burnett. Hi, thank you so much for coming, um, for speaking on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Uh, Why don't you just start by talking a little bit about yourself to our viewers? So my name is Yasminola. I've been working as an activist and an advocate for my own community. I was born in Northern Rakhine State. It's off of the western part of Myanmar or Burma. Um, as previously known. And my people have been undergoing something really, really tragic. And we've been dubbed the most persecuted minority on earth for various different reasons, but specifically because some of the things that we've experienced are what's called hallmarks of genocide. And there are several cases at at different levels in terms of the international justice mechanism that are sort of moving. But our entire experience as as Rohingya have been, you know, becoming refugees over and over and over again, and it hasn't ended. And so many Rohingya refugees in the camps in Bangladesh, where majority of Rohingya are now in the world, have been there for at least 40 years. So that's sort of what I'm trying to do right now is, is to, you know, raise awareness and do whatever I can to help. I really think that's a great goal. I know when I was prepping for this interview and for this podcast episode, I was doing a lot of research and I was talking to people in my community, even just in a friendship level way of, oh, I'm doing this interview about the Rohingya. And I was shocked by how many people said like, what does that word mean? (laughs) Yeah. Or that they didn't know about the situation. And it's, it's a huge situation going on, global impact. And it's been going on for a while now. Yeah. So I think hopefully some more people are learning or becoming more aware of the situation. Do you, would you be able to speak about more specifically what is happening and why it's happening in Myanmar? Right. So the ways things have been was that Rohingya were part of the Western part of Myanmar. And we used to coexist with our Rakhine uh, brothers and sisters. The, the area itself used to be its own sort of kingdom 
back in, you know, the eighth, seventh, eighth centuries. And it was colonized first by the Burman, which now have become Burma. But we were grouped together by the English and the British colonial rulers. And it sort of changed the borders and redrawing everything that, that we used to know. And even though we fought, you know, the World War II fascist Japanese army, because the country was sort of falling into their grasp, it didn't really help our case because the Burman at that time were fighting on the side of the fascist Japanese soldiers. And so the sort of tension uh, between the two groups of people and, and many more have been starting from that time onward. But there is a little bit uh, more layers to the sort of hatred that the Burmese people have toward Rohingya at this moment. And it is all a social construct that was built by the Burmese military being in power after the country actually gained independence in 1948. And we had a brief moment of the democratically elected government up until the general Nguyen, which is a, you know, a military general who was appointed to be a, a prime minister for a little bit, he decided to stage a coup d'etat. And since 1962 onward, up until 2011, the country was under the military ruling. It had become embedded with the values system and, you know, the personnel of the military, uh, or at least the military's family, in all of the systems, in all of the infrastructures that makes up the, the Burmese government. So you will see that the country actually is so adamant about having Burmese Buddhist value, which is not something that used to happen. It, it is something very, very new, actually was introduced by one of the democratically elected um, prime minister. And even though to this day, you know, in 2011, um, and, and on uh, a lot of political prisoners, including Aung San Suu Kyi, who is a democratic icon, um, was released from her, from her arrest, from her house arrest. The, <laughs> we think that the military's power have slowly dissolved, but it hasn't because they embedded themselves so deep down into the infrastructure of the country as a whole in the economic power, in the development, in the actual foundations of the country. The military has at least 90% of the national enterprise, including all of the you know, economic grasp of the market, basically, within the country. So most of what the Burmese people would make would then go and line their pockets later on. They have they've written themselves into the constitution and actually passed it because they now actually have 25% of the vote inside the general assembly and nothing can actually become a law without 75% approval. That means that there would always be a veto power for the military. And so many more things have happened, but they've been deliberate to actually further persecute people from around the country who actually have various different challenges. And Rohingya is actually not a unique case. We are persecuted the most, and it has proven to you know, some extent that this is a genocide. Um, it is an, a clear intent to actually annihilate an entire group of people. But in other parts of the country where aren't ethnic 
groups are present, the military actually, you know, try to, that's what they do, right? They normally try to make a case for more fundings from the government, for more um, profits, for, for everything more for them, but not necessarily for other things that are really, really essential in a working democracy, especially education, especially health. Actually, they outspend a lot of, you know, a lot of the uh, different parts that make it a really, really healthy democracy. Like I said, education and health absolutely comes last. And even during COVID-19, we actually found out, you know, very certain shady, you know, things going on. But yeah, they outspend a lot of other parts of the government. And they use those money to modernize themselves to ensure that they have all these new heavy artillery weapons, and basically have a business tie with Russia, China, and one of the more dreadful ones are North Korea. South Korea actually, uh, ironically, have um, business tie with the with the Burmese military as well by selling them arms. That's also something very, very surprising to me. But all of this makes it into basically something that enable the military to continue to exist and have the kind of power that they have to this day to further not just marginalize people, but using force to get things done for for the government, the civilian government at least. And it sort of changed the the way um, Rohingya or other ethnic minorities are seen. And that was basically a strategy that they've sort of executed for the past few decades. And one of the ways that they did that was writing us off of the curriculum that Rohingya was never, you know, something that was, uh, that existed in the, in the educational system when they learn about the Rakhine state, even though there are a lot more of us than they know. And we've been dubbed the people who actually traveled during World War II, traveled into the country. Actually, some of them even argued that we came into the country in the 1970s or the 1980s, because there was a Bengal war at that time. And it's completely untrue. Yes, we are, you know, very, very similar um, in a lot of ways, especially culturally and, and our facial features or, you know, the way we look and the way we worship uh, God is very similar to the people from Bangladesh. But that's how border works. We will exchange, you know, culture. We will do lots of different things that are in line and it's influencing. Basically, we influence each other. And that's also true when we root it back to, you know, linguistic um, narratives and, and we can, you know, compare a lot of different nation states today and how they probably have the same root. Now, all of this didn't make sense and still doesn't make sense to a lot of people inside the country. And the Burmese military have successfully used this, including the religious institutions to actually propel the arguments that Rohingya are not part of Buddhist Burma because they're not Buddhist. But this is all a facade to actually ensure that when they go, because they have economic power, remember, when they go and seize the land, what they call clearance operation, basically they burn down the houses, you know, mass rape women, ensure that there is an element of fear that will always, always be embedded inside a group of people like Rohingya and many more 
in order for them to be able to ensure that no one will ever come back to to claim those land that were that it's actually ancestral to them and, and their ancestral rights um, inherently. Many other, you know, sort of cruel campaigns were carried out. They would try and ensure that during the clearance operation, you know, they've used this, this sort of argument that is seen everywhere else in the world too, very, very Islamophobic, saying that Rohingya are sort of part of the ISIS or part of the Al-Qaeda. It's like seven seas away you know it's and we we barely have um like the phone someone having cell phones it's really really luxurious in our ideals um, for someone who live inside Burma because when they're shunned from the government from being included in part of you know democratic transition as the civilian government would claim it they've been shunned from other developments as well and Rakhine State have become the one of the poorest area inside Burma. And so essentially what the Myanmar military have done in 2017, the last one of the most well-known mass violence was that they started to surround the village. This is more than 200 villages that were burned down to the ground by the military and the security force. And then slowly they took some of the Rakhine people who actually aligned themselves with the military to actually help them execute the, the the torture of the Rohingya. And this includes, you know, burning people alive, includes mass rape of women, actually gathering them in a nearby compound to where they would then execute some of the men. Um, that's why they're now the difference between uh, women and men inside the camps quite drastic. You know, 60% are women and then the rest are men um, because of that reason, because they've decided to kill the men to make the case so that the women can hear the scream, the cry, the, you know, the slaughter, and it will instill fear in them forever. Down the, you know, down the ancestral line, no one else will be able to come back to claim the land. And, they have um, they've shot down people as they were fleeing in 2017. Streams of exodus would not end. And tens of thousands of people would travel, would run on foot and cross the river, you know, through a lot of difficult journey in order to get to Bangladesh, because that's, you know, the, the most logical thing that they could think of doing to save themselves and save their children. So, that's basically the, the recap of everything that's happened. I'm so sorry, this is very long, but... <laughs> no, I actually, I appreciate it because I was just thinking about when the situation in Myanmar with the Rohingya makes the news in the United States. Mm-hmm. It's a 90 second clip at the end of the news where it's like, now we got to throw in something that's happening in the world, or it's a short article. When it does make the news, it's a very short clip and no one ever gets the full picture. And even this, I'm sure, is not the full picture, but I really appreciate telling me and telling our listeners a little bit more so that they're more aware of the the full picture, not just, oh, the Rohingya are hated because they're Muslim um, and they're being killed. And like, that's the end of story. There's so many, so many facets to it. So I really do appreciate you taking the time to explain. I really wanted to paint a different, not paint a different picture or shift the narrative in any way, but it's it's something that's happening, but it's it's never something that um, that is explored as often, because this is actually more of a reason why we're we're being 
persecuted to this extent is because we're worth some money or the land that we own or something that we own, um, you know, after they actually in 1982, they decided to pass, a, to not pass a law. This was not, never actually passed um, through the, the, the actual channel, but um, they decided to enact an act called a Citizenship Act. And it, it actually stripped us off of our citizenship. And no Rohingya then have been able to get their citizenship back. They've been going, you know, jumping through hoops of uh, getting white card, getting red card, getting so many different card, kind of cards uh, that were basically promised to them essentially that, you know, eventually we'll give you a full citizenship. We're just going through changes right now and never, never accept something like that, right? But it was also enforced when the military personnel will come and collect your identification. You can no longer vote. You can no longer, you know, attend basically anything that has, um, anything that the state actually offers services. A lot of Rohingya women who then have difficult delivery or difficult pregnancy from time to time will then get really, really um, tortured inside a hospital as they visit them. So this has been years of, you know, limited rights to, uh, to access basic, you know, necessities, basic infrastructures, um, basic services, not being able to go to school, also limited rights of mobility. There is this IDP camps that are basically all around uh, Rakhine State and everywhere else too, um, especially in the Northern Shan State. All of this were actually people who used to have homes that were torched down just by the same, the same ways that they did in, in 2017. And they have actually experimented that and find success in it and eventually decided, okay, we can do this to the rest of the country where we want the land. And they've actually completely bulldozed the area, you know, like nothing has happened. And uh, a lot of human rights organizations have actually found the satellite image, complete different pictures of, of, the, of the land, of the geographic locations. China has a lot of pockets, have deep pockets in it. And um, this was actually uh, uh, one of the ways that China would actually get gain access to Indian Ocean through the deep sea port that they've already built and pipelines that go from Rakhine State to Kunming, um, Yunnan State. And this has already happened on our ancestral land. A lot of other issues come from where, you know, we draw the line, especially in a capitalist society, we draw the line between the economic developments and, you know, inherent human rights. We never see them parallel. We always see them, you know, intersect here and there when, when, whenever convenient. And in the U.S. is probably a lot clearer. In, in Canada as well, it's a late stage of capitalism where we prioritize the profit making rather than human lives. And what happened in this case was a lot of Western nations, especially the EU, the European Union, especially the United States, especially um, the UK, uh, Norway, Sweden, so many more countries have actually decided to remain in trading relationship with the, with the Burmese military. And that's where it hurts the most because some of these, you know, some of the civil, civil societies in their countries, in these nation states have actually 
made it very clear to the governments that, hey, this is not okay. Let's not actually deal with the Burmese military. This is a very genocidal group of people who actually not improved whatsoever in a lot of documents that, that a lot of research that people have done. So it hasn't changed. And um, the, the persecution of the Rohingya are still going on daily. Just as recently as two weeks ago, two children were actually used as a shell against the heavy artillery that the military is using against um, the ethnic armed groups um, that belong to the Rakhine people. So this is a very complex, you know, arena of so many different things, but it, it needs to be said that the, there is a lot more player into the actual problem rather than that we are, you know, a, a group that look different or, you know, uh, have a different religion. And that's all the basis for the hate. I definitely think what you just said at the end is very important. Also, it's very important to realize for people, none of our listeners, I guess, live in Myanmar. And they might be thinking, this doesn't really impact me. It's sad. But the United States government, a bunch of other governments are still dealing with, with the Burmese government, are still refusing to call it a genocide or aren't putting on the sanctions that they need to do in order to take a stance on this and say, this isn't okay. And I think that a lot of people need to realize that and say like, we are involved. It is a global issue that is not just uh, Myanmar. It's not just Southeast Asia. It's globally. So yeah. Has it, do you know, been officially recognized as a genocide It has been um, called a genocide by the OHCHR, which is the United Nations Human Rights Office of the High Commissioner. So the 2017 massacre and and the clearance operation actually triggered uh, a mechanism inside the UN. You know, although we we want to think that the UN might be obsolete, like, you know, the the United States president would say, current president, um, and, and so many more, you know, bureaucratic uh, tendency that the UN will always step on its own toes. It has actually triggered this process and created the independent investigation mechanism on fact-finding mission on Myanmar. And um, although the three investigators that are on that team have um, been basically barred from entering Myanmar, they were able to collect some very, very revealing and very effective sort of set of data that helps the, uh, the case being made at the international courts for us, for the Rohingya. And although they've, you know, they've finished their mandates, like I think maybe in 2019, um, they've collected a lot of data in comparing Rohingya's uh, mass atrocity to other ethnic minorities that have basically been struggling around the same thing, even though they have, aren't ethnic groups that potentially might help their case or, or not. Um, for the past few years. And so this was, um, the, the, their language was that the genocidal acts were you know, committed and there needs to be a proof, basically a process to prove a genocidal intent that are by the um, Myanmar military and the security forces and potentially the civilian government. So Canada, as I've been working here in like in this realm and a little bit more now internationally, we've been advocating with with Canada and and 
that's why I was um, really fascinated by the ways that by one of your points when you were saying, you know, not a lot of people actually know who we are. So we started actually working with the federally funded uh, museums that's called um, the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. It's quite a big museum in Winnipeg in Manitoba. And um, we started to just ask them about, you know, removing Aung San Suu Kyi's photo because she's complicit to all these crimes. She she called us various different names and she doesn't really even want to utter our name. It's so ironic that I was actually able to meet her when I went to the court and she sat like super close by, but we're on different sides, which is wild. But that's a story for another time. <laughs> if you don't know who she is, Aung San Suu Kyi is a state councillor of Myanmar, a position comparable to prime minister. She began her career as a politician who worked to help Myanmar transition towards democracy, and she was placed under house arrest for about 15 years for her criticism of the military junta. She even won a Nobel Peace Prize in 1991 while she was prisoner. She was hailed as a hero for democracy in Myanmar and a great leader prior to her part in the Rohingya genocide, for which many have called for her to be stripped of her accolades, including her Peace Prize. She'll come up again soon in Yasmin's story, so now let's get back to the interview. Um... So the government had actually never admitted that anything wrong happened inside Rakhine State, and they've always called it uh, ethnic conflicts, um, which is very much, you know, writing, basically trying to shield the world from knowing that this is something more and more drastic, more tragic that's happened. And, and it cannot be a, an ethnic conflict. Conflict means that there are two equal powers that are at odds, right? But this is one that has a heavy artillery and weapons of mass destruction and the other that have basically nothing because the military actually takes away the weapons, anything like machetes from the houses um, in 2017 because they're scared and, and they're strategizing to actually take control of these villages um, and, and potentially leave the Rohingya no room to, to be able to struggle or fight back. Um, conflict and definitely just... suggests that you all are maybe even the Rohingya are instigating or fighting yeah. back or that there's a yeah. reason um, yeah. when that's not the case at all. Not the case. There's an, a, a real uh, uh, issue with the imbalance of power. And so that was n not something that they want to admit. Okay. But um, we've worked with, uh, with the museum and we worked with the uh, Montreal Holocaust Museum to create a genocide learning tool, which is called Us Against Them. And this is a learning tool that compares um, how the process of alienating Rohingya have been, you know, successful by actually stripping us off of our citizenship slowly, you know, changing the ways people call us, changing the ways we actually be able to access different, you know, different things, uh, services and changing our identity cards and what that means for the Rohingya um, in terms of othering and compare that to the, the othering process of um, the Holocaust survivor, one of the Holocaust survivors. And that was a really, really powerful um, piece of documents. And um, this, this is made available for, for teachers who teach genocide studies all across Canada um, for grade 12, which is, you know, another way we can actually influence young minds um, and actually open their perspective a little bit to uh, a more contemporary problems that, that could be traced back to, you know, the same kind of issues that we've been facing for millennia. So 
that's one thing we've also, you know, talked to the museum so much that they actually eventually helped us um, create it and curated the um, exhibition called Time to Act Rohingya Voices. And it features some photos that Kevin Freyer, a Canadian photographer who actually went to um, document some of the stuff that was happening uh, when people, when the exodus were arriving in the, in the Bangladeshi um, uh, shore. And essentially um, we chose some of the photos that, that was you know, meaningful enough for us all of them are, but you know some of the ones that are a little bit more impactful. And then it includes the uh, interactive interviews from various different um, Canadian Rohingya community uh, members. And that was really exciting to do, to be able to like round up people and bring them to do this. And um, the the museum is still, you know, the exhibition still on, you know, up and and running. But the museum had actually decided to take her, uh, take Aung San Suu Kyi's photos away, dimmed her light, and essentially that helped propel our argument with the Canadian government because at the same time we were trying to push the Canadian government to do a little bit more. And just a little bit more is calling it what it is, a genocide. And so in 2000, late 2018, the Canadian government actually passed a motion um, to call this a genocide, and it's unanimous between the Senate and the um, and the House of Commons. Uh, so that was one thing that they did, and slowly they started to. Um, since the International Court of Justice actually um, had the case between the Gambia, who actually brought the case against Myanmar for committing genocide against Rohingya or for the suspicion of it, Canada had since then recently, maybe two or three months. Uh, decided to join the case to intervene that's the legal term and um, what it means is that the the Canada and the Netherlands have actually decided to support the the process and they're going to take part in in holding Myanmar accountable so this is basically as far as the legal mechanism have have gone and what has happened so far but also there is another case at the International Criminal Court which basically prosecute individuals and a handful of individuals at that because they probably the court doesn't have a capacity to prosecute everybody but um, the the court fell short in having jurisdiction because again you know international legislations never something that was compulsory for every nation state to have to take part in so Myanmar never actually signed the statute that originated the court so the court has actually cannot prosecute the crimes for the crimes that happen inside Myanmar, but they can for the crimes of forced displacement. So that's been, that's basically the, the basis of the case that's ongoing in the ICC. And um, there are various other efforts in, you know, other parts of um, the world. But one very, very important thing that I think um, was I think it, it's, it would be as important as, you know, pursuing legal justice mechanism and, and sanctions and, and various other, you know, tactics is to ensure that we reach out to our Burmese counterparts or ethnic communities that have gone through similar experience. And basically, that's what I do now. Reach out to youth um, that live inside Myanmar and um, try to build solidarity that is a little bit more meaningful than just, hey, we suffer the same way. But how do we actually move on from this narrative of victimizing, of um, alienating, you know, languages? 
And how do we realize and recognize that this is actually a pattern and not just something that's unique to our own experiences and something that the military have always done, you know, raping women, mass rape, um, torching down the houses, uh, taking over the lands, making sure that you're illegitimate before they take down your land. All of this stuff has actually recurred inside of Myanmar history for a long time. We've never actually come to the table at the same time to be able to discuss this. So we've been, become refugees over and over and over for you know, the generals to actually enjoy their lives. That's basically what it is. You bring up so many great points. I just want to talk about a few things really quickly. The first, I love the work that you're doing or that you guys did with the museum. I think it really shows how there are so many different ways to raise awareness. And that's a beautiful one. And then talking about the Holocaust, I know at my high school, we had a class called Remember the Holocaust. And I never took it. So I'm not exactly sure what that class was like, but I I can't imagine a a better way to remember the Holocaust than to guard against other genocides happening around the world. And this seems like Mm -hmm. a perfect example where it's very similar to what happened in the Holocaust. Um, And you can say, remember the Holocaust all you want, but you have to, one of the ways to remember it is to actively guard against it. And I really think that's something big that a lot of people hopefully are coming to realize and will work in the Rohingya's favor um, as the Myanmar government is persecuted um, or is brought to justice. I'm not sure on the wording, but I know you mentioned, and I've read that you went to the International Court of Justice in December of 2019. What was that like? I went twice. So I went um, to the hearing, which is the cases, uh, when the case was, actually, I went three times. Okay. <laughs> Let me actually recount the story. So I went on the day that I was invited. And this was, I think, a fluke, completely a fluke. <laughs> We all have this imposter syndrome, right? But I I would like to think that um, I did not earn that place because this is this is not something to be earned. It's it's just that people are suffering. That's why we're even in this country talking about something you know as important as this. And I would always (laughs) beat myself up for for enjoying these luxury and not in in a toxic way, but to remind myself that there are so many people that could use this second to to further their um their struggle and and to further you know the cause i was invited by one of the groups called no peace without justice and they do amazing work um all around the world but specifically in terms of myanmar they invited me to speak at an event right after uh, so there was a buzz about the gambia bringing up the case and that day was uh, november 11 2019 they were supposed to file a case at the international court of justice for Myanmar to be brought and for the hearing to start, basically for the case to kickstart. And um, I was able to meet with the legal team at that event because they were also part of the panel. And I was part of the um, Rohingya representation uh, with two of my other colleagues. And um, I was able to meet with the then justice minister of the Gambia. And um, since then I was invited to, to be part of the representation inside the court. And I was able to sit with my um, three other uh, Rohingya brothers and sisters who traveled from the camps, got a special permission from Bangladeshi government because leaving the country to be settled in a third country was not something that Bangladeshi government is willing to do right now or willing to negotiate for it to take place. 
Um, so issues with exit permit and whatnot, um, similar things that happen within the same region um, because they want to prevent people from having pull factors to come over to, to Bangladesh. It's just legal and, and political arguments. But I was really happy to be able to see two sisters from the camps and one brother and then, you know, my other Rohingya colleagues who basically are everywhere. Some of them were demonstrating to, you know, to support the Gambia and they were met with a counter protest to support, not protest, a demonstration to, to, um, to support uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, who was there as well. And it was a surreal, really surreal moment to be able to like sit just a few feet away from her and her um, security team who looked us down, like really like just, you know, stared at us just trying to have this power pose. And um, uh, it was really funny the way the security team works, was just constantly like staring, like staring us down. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we were, I was like, I know what you're doing. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a funny moment. And um, later on, uh, I was able to basically witness the arguments made by both sides. And um, I, I couldn't be happier that I was sitting on the right side, um, but also along with so many important people. Like I was like, oh my God, what did I do to deserve this? And, you know, all of the diplomats and, you know, uh, ambassadors who, who uh, stationed in, in the Netherlands came to witness the case and um, on both sides, actually, and obviously more on, on our side. And um, the ways that uh, the civilian government led by Aung San Suu Kyi made the arguments was to defend the military generals and their actions and not one word about Rohingya, not one word that she would say or call us by our names. And that was, that was enough, I think, in terms of, you know, what like the meaning or, or the, the, the construct that is inherent within the, the Burmese civilian government culture is that they're not willing to even accept who we are um, as a people, as you know, a people with unique experience, unique culture, and someone that belong inside that country. If they're not even willing to do that, to accept us, to call us by our names, then what else? What other arguments do we need to make? And and I was like, you know, if I was a judge, this this would be it. Your Honor, I rest my case, right? <laughs> it's very ironic <laughs> if you're trying to defend your actions and say, no, we're not committing a genocide, blah, blah, no. blah. But you won't even say the name. It would call uh, us Rakhine. So, oh, I think I for completely forgot the actual um the actual word that she used, but I think she she used the language something along the line of um, Rakhine Muslim or Muslim in Rakhine, and it's just like why are you having such a you know why are you making this complicated for yourself? Yeah. <laughs> like you're um, self-incriminating, like you're incriminating yourself. Yeah, yeah, literally. And that was the that was the conversation that I had with you know some of the colleagues and and the legal team was like oh my god that was a really like really low blow and they just I don't think that they've recovered from that but obviously uh, they did try to make some compelling arguments around the technicalities see genocide or war crimes or something that 
have that much impact on human lives will never win in terms of morality, will never win in terms of, you know, they will never absolve themselves from the crimes completely. They'll get away from the nooks and crannies of the legal justice mechanism, from little tiny holes that are, you know, everywhere inside the legal system because it's a human-made system. It, it will, you know, always have flaws. But that's, that's how... That's how, how I felt was that, wow, the, they would never be able to get away from this if it was just based on our morality, based on what's right and wrong. And so it, it, it almost helped empowering me in a way when I was able to witness that, you know, apart from wanting to get into a legal profession, to see that, to be able to be part of it and witness it in, in person. Um, it was also the, the actual fact that the argument was there was no rape. There was no this, there was no that, nothing happened. It was just conflict. It was this, it was that. And it was never an admission of wrongdoing, uh, regardless of whether or not she's been, you know, participating in it, which she now made clear to the rest of the world that she is completely 100% complicit. And one very important thing to note was that Canada did strip her off of her honorary citizenship at the time that they've actually passed the motion to call Rohingya crisis a genocide. So that was an important moment. But what her response was that I don't care about the citizenship. But the rest of the six people, so there are six people in total that were, you know, honored in this manner. The other people are um, Desmond Tutu, Malala Yousafzai, you know, all these important, really, really change makers that basically shook the world, but I guess she doesn't care anymore to be part of that because, because of whatever. <laughs> I guess she can't really make a big deal about losing her citizenship when she's drunk and in power. Citizenship. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the third time that I was there, what was when the, the order um, on provisional measures were, were um, basically that time, the, the ICJ um, announced their decision on whether or not the case can, can keep going or whether or not they're going to throw out the case and that it doesn't have any, any leg, it doesn't have any ground. And they decided to adopt the case, to, to actually take on the case for both of the um, party uh, nation state to prove their own cases. One side is whether or not genocide happened and the other side, how it happened and what happened. And the other really, really monumental um, uh, historical moment was that the court decided to announce and, and, and basically use a legal term uh, to say that Rohingya are a protected minority. They should be protected. And this protection was not you know, made clear uh, who should be doing the protection. And so it was a generalized statement and I would want to, uh, with little bit of knowledge that I have, I would want to um, interpret in a way that uh, it means it encompasses, you know, all of the other governments, all of the international community to do the act of protecting. And that was potentially really, really, really powerful. We've not had any legal administrative government that were willing to make that move, willing to say that we are a protected group of human being. It's very logical, but 
no one has actually had the the bravery or the the courage to say that to describe us as such um and so that was really really powerful um and i was really happy to be able to sit through a half an hour of the court or um court order and not knowing what was going to happen um until the last moment when they mentioned yes the case is not going <laughs> That would be so stressful. Oh my goodness! I was squeezing the hands of my um, my Rohingya co- one of my co- Rohingya colleagues, and uh, <laughs> I I knew that I said that um, to a lot of the press uh, members, and I was just like, "Damn, this was <laughs> like I was sweating." <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad. Obviously, I'm glad that it they decided to keep it ongoing. Um, mm-hmm. Very so important. They're still like, sort of proving the case right now. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I would like to talk just about you for a few minutes. Um, So you mentioned going to the ICJ. Um, Did you say it made you want to become a lawyer or get into like the field of law? I mean, I wanted to do that from before, but uh, this was really helpful to be able to sort of witness in person. Would it be refugee law, international law, or? Probably human rights law. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) That's exciting. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I've seen attached to your name, president of the Rohingya Human Rights Network. Is that true? I used to be, uh, I used to serve as a president of the Rohingya Human Rights Network. I no longer work with them now, but um, obviously not in a, not in a, in the same ways anymore. I left the organization, but currently I'm doing, I'm basically trying to venture out into more of what I want to do for the community um, in terms of the gender experience that women, Rohingya women have um, and building solidarity with other groups. Um, Rohingya Human Rights Network has done a lot of like grassroots work and, you know, um, branching out to the government and whatnot. Not something that I want to explore right now, but they've, you know, obviously done a lot of great work as well. Uh, So where do you see yourself in five or 10 years? Well, <laughs> it's a loaded question. Yeah. I mean, I really have, um, there are a lot of people that are being persecuted every day, everywhere around the world. And having experienced, you know, some, some part of the persecution that Rohingya have gone through, the erasure, the alienation, the disenfran- uh, disenfranchisement, the distance, the disconnect from our own roots, the part that we have to find ourselves again um, in the middle and not really belong to any part of the community of where we now settle or where we used to be. It's like a, a problem of, I think, very communal to immigrant and refugees community. I want to use this experience and use this insight to work on you know, different causes and not just, you know, uh, exclusively Rohingya, but obviously this would be my priority for a little while up until I can feel like there there is enough support and I don't actually need to participate in it. So I'm hoping to continue to do my work in terms of, you know, bringing out the voices and highlighting the gendered experience because it's so important. We don't talk enough about the, the ways things are always gendered everywhere in the world everything that we see as social constructs are always gendered. And when it comes to genocide, when it comes to mass atrocity, women suffer not more in the quantitative way, but it 
it actually embeds in us and it alters our genes, alters our DNA, alters our brain chemistry. It passes down to the next you know, generation. And that has you know, a lot more to do with the ways women have been socialized and institutionalized in a lot of different ways to basically become victimized at some point in their lives. And that should, you know, should be talked about a little bit more, in my opinion, because without being able to do that, we would never be able to put a stop to it, to the transgenerational trauma. And I witnessed that daily, you know, from a very young age, I witnessed people going through this PTSD, so many other things, anxiety, depression, that's just the early stages of the trauma that it can manifest itself in your life. But also, I want to, you know, work on more of the various different causes that might need legal protection, might need legal arguments to help some of these individuals. I see a lot of things that are happening because I used to live in Thailand for at least 16 years. So I see a lot of media's pieces that are talking about uh, peaceful protesters being hosed down by, you know, high pressure water, um, the military and the, uh, and the Thai um, police are basically going around ensuring that they arrest people who are just asking for a reform for, you know, for the monarchy to, to stop having this much power and the power should be delegated to the people who, you know, should be able to live in a democratic uh, country when the constitution actually deliberately mentioned that. And it's, it's really sad, but it also sort of help me, you know, fuel the flame inside me. And, and I really want to be able to possibly do that in the future is to help people just have some sort of legal protection, or at least know um, the, the, the legal language well enough that I would be able to use it to defend someone or to be able to use it for a good cause. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm so inspired by listening to you because it can get daunting to think Hopefully we are working towards progress with the issue in Myanmar, but then there are so many others, Thailand, Hong Kong, everything that's happening. But I'm glad there are people like you who will continue to work for it and hopefully make our world slightly a better place and help each individual find a community and use whatever tools that they have to really have their own identity and find peace in their life and, and their situation. Really quickly before I go, I have to confess, I'm not on TikTok, but the way that we found you was through TikTok. Um, my <laughs> friend sent me, she's like, oh my gosh, look at this. Um, and it reminded me, I was reminded of it when you were talking about the Holocaust because the TikTok was you talking about that. Um, so what is it like using TikTok for, to do some advocate, advocacy? Um, how do you decide it? And how has it helped you, I guess? I just would love to hear the social media aspect of it all. Yeah, so I don't only use TikTok. I also use Twitter. I have a lot more followings on Twitter. So I've that, seen your Twitter that's too. That's always yeah. a little bit easier. Um, but TikTok has a different, I think, different perks about it is, is that people can see you. A lot of things like Facebook or Twitter, you know, you'd have to be a, you'd have to have a large following, a larger following in order to put something out and make it sound so, you know, impactful. But this was, already the medium like video was the only way you could actually communicate it you know it doesn't really matter if the video was you talking or someone else talking or just a text basically like infographics 
Um, and I, I was actually uh, uh, approached by someone from uh, Refugees International. We were doing a campaign to uh, call the U.S. government uh, to call on to them to actually make a genocide determination. Uh, Secretary Mike Pompeo has not um, so far made any determination. And I don't know if that will happen before the election. We will we'll see. But um, the, the, the organization asked me because I told them I have a TikTok and they're like, yeah, can you make a video about that? And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, it's actually shared a lot more outside of TikTok than it is shared in TikTok, which is really, really fun. Um, and I just realized that in one minute, I have very, very limited amount of time to be able to explain everything and, and the nuances within the, the actual situation. But it was, it was um, something that I already started talking to people about um, from before wanting to do a video on, on that, on, on, the, on the similarity or comparing the Holocaust to the you know, real world or contemporary um, situation or the crisis. And it's really important because ultimately we have a choice to make. And that choice is something that the groups that are persecuted do not have. Whether or not we want to voice our own um, opinion or whether or not we want to make ourselves heard in what topic, in whatever we, you know, we see fit, in whatever ways we see compelling or worthy of pursuing, those are ultimately really a situation of life and death for some people. And where we stand in the history will matter so much when we look back because we, we are equipped with so much more you know, access to information more than, you know, more than before, more than we've had in the history. But if we ultimately don't use that to our, to our benefit, um, to help people, or at least to be the, you know, the megaphone, to be um, the part that amplify their voices because they're being, you know, they're being muzzled, they're being silenced for who they are for so many various different reasons as we were talking about earlier we don't decide to at least amplify their voices or actually talk about them, talk to other people, just getting to know about, you know, even educating ourselves about one particular group of people and pick up a cause, one cause. It doesn't have to be 10, 10 other causes. It can be overwhelming, but just one cause that you want to get to know, that you want to educate yourself on and start talking to your friends and family, you know, about those things. That can really, really change things in the future very drastically. We just have to decide to start with this first step. But a lot of times we get overwhelmed to even take this first step. And that's the, that's the part that I want people to be able to take away from the TikTok video, I guess. I don't know if, if it came off as clearly, but it ultimately poses a question you know, to whoever watches that, we have a choice to make a difference in potentially something very, very tragic in the world. Either we can have their blood on our hands or we could be the change makers that they need. That was Yasmin Ula talking to Jackie Burnett about her experience as a Rohingya refugee and activist. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us in the comments below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com. 
Follow us at Refuge Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for all the updates on our show. As always, a huge thank you to Maxi International House for making our show possible. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.